Hello, I'm Jill Baker and would like to welcome you to Henson's new series of podcasts which look at welfare cases in the Court of Protection. These podcasts are intended for social care providers. Hempsons are leading health, social care and charity lawyers and work very closely with social care providers on the full range of legal issues they face. With no further ado, I will pass you over to Rachel Hawkin and Liz Stokes, who are both members of Hempsons Health and Social Care Advisory Team and are very experienced on working on court protection welfare matters. Thanks, Jill. Hi, I'm Rachel Hawkin, and this is going to be the first bit short episode which will attempt to demystify the Court of Protection and we'll give a high level overview about what the Court of Protection is, its history and what we refer to today as the modern day Court of Protection, whilst having a quick look at its roles and its powers. Hi Rachel, this is Liz. Um, so Hi. we're looking at what the Court of Protection from the, the, the vantage point of social providers today and we're going to try and demystify it. So my first question is really, um, what is the Court of Protection? Mm, and that's a really good question. It's an answer that not a lot of people in the social care sector know because the social care sector unfortunately often works on the periphery of Court of Protection proceedings. So Court of Protection, um, often referred to as COP, is a specialist court. It was established under the Mental Capacity Act 2005 and its primary role is to make decisions on financial or welfare matters for people who cannot make their own decisions at the time that they need to be made. So to this mini episode, we'll look at court of protection from a welfare case perspective. But what is always crucial to remember from the outset is that the jurisdiction of the court of protection could only be exercised when an individual is deemed to lack capacity. That's really the absolute hub. And if an individual does have capacity, then the Court of Protection, quite simply, doesn't have any jurisdiction. The Court of Protection always has within its proceedings the best interests of an individual at its core. It's underpinned by key pieces of legislation. And as you probably guessed, the key piece of that being the Mental Capacity Act 2005, which we might within this podcast and through other series refer to it as the MCA. The Mental Capacity Act or MCA is intended to be a protective piece of legislation, whilst has a tricky balance to play in recognising and promoting an individual's autonomy, whilst also being quite paternalistic. That's really helpful. I mean, just to go back to the first bit about demystifying again, I think from um, social care and other providers' point of view, I think there's been a sense that the Court of Protection has sometimes been quite mysterious or quite secretive mm -hmm. and, I, and often gets a bit of a bad press. But I think um, I think you'll be aware as well, there's a sort of a move to making the court more open and more transparent with the publication of decisions and um, reasoning and also um, more open access to, to court hearings as well. That might be something yeah. that social care providers are more interested in. So just before we talk about capacity and the mental capacity, which is, um, I think you've mentioned, is the key to um, Court of Protection matters. Um, what do you, what is sort of the history of, of the Court of Protection? Where did it come from and how did we get here? So the history, which I find quite interesting, um, dates actually back to the 1800s. So the length of the Court of Protection in its history isn't quite as extensive as other courts in England and Wales, but the way that the Court of Protection looked in 1800s is very different to how the Court of Protection looks today. Back to the 1800s, Court of Protection was limited in its scope to financial matters. But with the introduction of the MCA in 2007, that really established what we now call the modern day Court of Protection, and it significantly broadened its scope. 
So as well as looking at financial matters, it also looked at welfare cases and it will also make decisions, which we can come on to a bit later, about appointment of deputies, lasting power of attorneys and stepping in if we have concerns that those who we have appointed to act on behalf of an individual are not promoting their best interests. So you've mentioned two things um, previously about capacity and best interests. Mm. And I think um, those who've had any contact with the Court of Protection will know that they are the sort of the hinge and the key the key factors in Court of Protection yes. cases. So I'm sure social care providers um, are familiar with the concept of capacity and the capacity testing. But let's just look at a little bit more about capacity um, and, and where that comes from and, and how that is central to the Court of Protection. Yeah, that's a really good point. So the two pillars really that you see in court of protection cases are first of all capacity and secondly best interest. You can only, as everybody you quite rightly said listening to this podcast, will know you can only make a best interest decision on somebody's behalf if you know that they lack capacity. Determining whether or not somebody lacks capacity in practice isn't always straightforward. But within court of protection proceedings you often hear practitioners refer to the gateway of capacity and that comes back to the concept that if an individual has capacity, then court of protection is not an option. So capacity is the cornerstone of court of protection jurisdiction. And the first step in court of protection cases is always to determine what the position is with capacity. And you'll often see capacity formed in different pieces of evidence. The most common in court of protection proceedings for welfare cases being capacity evidence provided in um, Dole's assessment. So as part of your standard authorisations, your Form 3s, your Form 4, completed by best interest assessors. And capacity is usually in respect of three domains in court of protection proceedings. So first off, looking at whether an individual has capacity to conduct litigation and then moving on to whether or not they've got capacity to make decisions regarding residence and their care. One thing to always bear in mind, which all of our listeners will know, is that capacity is very time specific. And when you start court of protection proceedings, that doesn't change. You always need to keep capacity under review. And you'll find when court of protection proceedings move on that actually additional domains where capacity evidence might be required start to pop up. So, for example, on contact with others and the use of social media or Internet, for example. I know that's a case that um, we've looked at and you've had a couple of cases, haven't you, Liz, that have looked at that type of issue. So it can easily become a very complex question. Um, but the starting point is that if an individual lacks capacity, there needs to be sufficient evidence before the Court of Protection for them to make at least an interim declaration that an individual lacks capacity in order to ignite their jurisdiction. So I think capacity, as we can see, is it, it can potentially be the subject of a podcast or a um, training session or a Absolutely, webinar. Yes. Or on <laughs> yes, its own. A topic on its own. A topic on its own. So we won't go into huge detail more, but I think I think it's right to say we've it can be increasingly complex and it's an issue that is revisited throughout potential court protection proceedings. And, and as you say, I have had um, increasing cases dealing with capacity around social media and internet access, which are um, increasingly common. Um, yeah. So all aspects of capacity are key to the court of protection. You then move on in the court of protection scene to look at best interests. And I think um, it's fair to say that the, how the court considers best interests is, is very much akin to how a best interest decision would be made within the um, any other setting, social mm. or, or, or other um, hospital setting in accordance with the Mental Capacity Act. Um, so yeah. then best interest becomes the next factor in court of protection proceedings. 
Yeah, and you find that the best, once you have court of protection proceedings initiated, then the best interest decision maker becomes the court, essentially is how it works. But the court works through the same two pillars that you would do if you're making a best interest decision about the use of covert medication, for example, for a service user. You'll always look at capacity first, and in the instance of covert medication, that could be capacity assessment by a GP. And you then move on to the best interest decision. And that's when you're applying the key elements of the Mental Capacity Act, the key five principles. And that's very similar to what the court process is. It's just a lot more involved and you'll have different parties involved, such as the official solicitor, which, again, representation for the individual is a topic that we'll come on to throughout this course of podcast series. So in taking a a proposed best interest decision to the court of protection the court is not then asked to, to to make that decision the court is asked to determine from the plans or proposals put before it that as to um which best interest decision which brings us on to the actual powers of the court of protection itself mm. um so my understanding and i think yours is well is that the primary power is, is to make decisions on the behalf of an individual in respect of a specific decision um what are the other powers of the Court of Protection? Yeah, what examples so, would there be of decisions? Mm, so you can make other powers rather about the Court of Protection has other powers to make decisions on the appointing of a deputy. That could be a steward or a custodian. And you could also have decisions for the appointment and sometimes the removal and determining the validity of lasting powers of attorney. So the powers of the Court of Protection Whilst its primary function is to make decisions um, on behalf of an individual that's capacity, so basically to put them in the position that they would have been had they had capacity to make the decision, the Court of Protection's powers are quite wide ranging and are often divided into two. So you can have a Court of Protection making a declaration and you can also have a Court of Protection making a decision. So if I look at the declarations first, that is basically what you'd get in the first instance. So the court of protection would make a declaration on whether an individual lacks capacity to make a specific decision. And at the beginning of proceedings, that's often termed as an interim declaration, whilst the parties are in the process of gathering additional evidence to work towards a conclusion of the best interest analysis. When you get to the end of proceedings, if the court is still in agreement that the individual lacks capacity and there is sufficient evidence to show that, then the interim declaration is often then converted into a final. You can also get declarations in relation to the lawfulness of an act yet done or um, an act proposed. So that could be um, the use of blood products, for example, and that's quite a popular one, whilst it's not one that necessarily would be something that would come in the social care sector, but it's a good example to understand what a declaration is. The Court of Protection in making its decisions that within welfare cases is broadly centred around decisions in relation to an individual's residence. It can also make decisions in relation to contact with specified people, which is often um, a tricky area for care providers where you have family members um, and having to enter into behavioural contracts, for example. You also have the court protection making decisions on the giving and refusing of consent to treatment. And whilst that doesn't always occur for, again, the social care sector, you might have a situation where you have a residence requiring medical treatment and trying to get them into an acute setting is something which the court protection may offer assistance in. That's really helpful. I think in future um, podcasts, we're going to look a little bit at how specifically social care providers might become involved in different proceedings. So we'll come on to that later. Mm -hmm. But in general terms, um, 
how does the court work? It's it's not, I think, as uh, and I think you'll um, agree, it's not intended as an adversarial process. It should be to um, encourage communication between those involved in proceedings and, and, and resolve issues. Is that your experience or is that your understanding? Absolutely, yes. The starting point is that court of protection proceedings should really be there as a last resort. What you want to do is make sure that you've got really good levels of communication and you need to have very well documented um, best interest decisions and discussions trying to reach an agreement on what is in the best interest of an individual. It's often unfortunately the case that we need to go to the court of protection where it's just not possible to reach that level of agreement and we need to get some judicial scrutiny involved. But even once proceedings are started, you're absolutely right, Liz, then they shouldn't be adversarial. It should be something which promotes the individual's best interests at its core. And the best way to do that is through good, solid communication. It's often easier said than done and it is a very emotive practice area. Um, it often involves sometimes quite difficult matters to try and adjudicate on. But the main, I suppose, target of these proceedings is as I say is to keep the individual's best interest at the heart of it so in order to do that you need to have really good levels of communication um, and yeah make sure that we're properly trying to ascertain the wishes and feelings of p but also those involved and have an interest in their welfare thanks Rachel. i think that's certainly helped to mystify it at, at, on some level as i say i think we'll talk about other issues in future podcasts thanks Thank you, Rachel and Liz, for helping to demystify the Court of Protection for Social Care Providers and for giving us an overview and actually also some of the history, which um, which I found really interesting. I'm certainly looking forward to future episodes, which will delve into more detail. And the next issue will begin to look at how the social care sector may find themselves involved in, in the Court of Protection proceedings. Should any of our listeners have any comments, questions or suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to get in touch with me via email at j.baker at hempsons.co.uk.